The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. As limited as it is, from this earthly, fallen perspective of kind of what it will be like when Christ comes again and the new Jerusalem, new heavens and new earth has been set up and established, and just the hearing of layering of voices over one another, proclaiming the excellence and the reign of God. Uh, can you wait? Okay, guess you can. All right. Well, Exodus chapter 2. I can't. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to go right now. Exodus 2. Uh, anybody wanting to see any change this year in 2015? Anybody in your fat clothes right now? I'm in my fat clothes right now. I got some skinny clothes, but those don't come out very much. And I got some middle clothes that I'm just hoping to get in those middle clothes, right? Anybody getting in an argument this morning because nothing in your closet fit? Right? You're looking for some change this year? Well, the kind of change maybe that you're looking for is not so trite as to lose a few pounds. Maybe the type of change that you're looking for this year has to do with much more heavy circumstances. You are in the midst of suffering, and that suffering has gone on for a long, long time. And you are beginning to wonder, does suffering go unnoticed? This morning, I, I want to I talk about that. It's probably not the best topic that if I were to, to poll you and say, what should I speak on in the, in the early stages, in the very first Sunday? My mic's going to fluctuate a little bit. They're trying to get it dialed in, so if you hear that... They're, they're going to get there, so just, just be patient and wait for it. But, but maybe you'd say, this is not the best topic to preach on, but here we go. We've preached through Exodus. We've preached through books of the Bible, and here we are. And these Israelites are still there in this um, slavery that they are under in Egypt, and they are suffering, and many of them probably at this moment are saying, does suffering go unnoticed? It was almost three weeks ago that... Uh, that I got that phone call from my parents that, um, that my sister, they had found her in the driveway and, and uh, she had laid there all night after someone had attacked her and, and uh, she was unconscious and her uh, body temperature at the time was 80 degrees and um, my dad performed CPR on her and uh, she has been uh, in the uh, neurocritical care unit there in, uh, in Tennessee. They've moved her to a step-down room and uh, almost three weeks later, the only thing that she can do is, is open her eyes. She's opened her eyes. We're thankful for that. She doesn't do that on command, but she is opening her eyes more frequently. She moves this right hand some, and she moves that right foot some. Uh, the left side still doesn't move. She hasn't spoken to us. She doesn't track with her eyes except for last night when my sister was leaving. My younger sister was leaving the hospital, and she told my, uh, my sister in the hospital bed laying there, I'm leaving. Bye. We love you. My sister's eyes went from the wall or the TV uh, to her, and so we're thankful for that. Um, but there comes a point where you begin to say, God, why does this happen? God, will, what will she be like? Will she ever wake up? Some of you are at a point in your life, and maybe it's not this, but maybe it's something else, and you're saying, God, will this ever change? God, do you, do you hear me? 
God, do you, do you care for me? Do you, do you see me, God? Do you see what I'm going through? God, have you forgotten me? I, I wonder. I think these Israelites probably at some point felt like God had forgotten them, that God never, no longer saw them, that He wasn't listening to them, that He had no idea what they were going through. Well, our passage today gives hope for those who have family members and siblings in hospital beds or those dealing with all sorts of other things to trust in the Lord. I want to read this today, and I want to give you about three points coming out of this that deal with this question, does suffering go unnoticed? Let's look at Exodus chapter 2 and follow along with me as I read verse 23 through 25. The Bible here says, During those days, those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. First thing I want to show you out of this passage is that God is at work even when we don't realize it. That God is at work even when you and I don't realize it. And then first few words of these, these three verses tell us, they say, during those many days. Well, it causes us to have to review. We've been off from Exodus for a few weeks, and let me just go back to where, where, we, where we've left off. Up till now, the people of Israel were fruitful. And they increased greatly. They, they, they just continued, no matter what was thrown at them, to, to expand. And this is a carrying out of God's plan all the way back to the beginning of creation. God said in the garden when he created Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And we see this carrying itself out, even in the children of Israel, even as they go into Egypt. They come into Egypt, and they're there for a long time. And they're the, the king that knew Jacob... Um, died, and now there's a new king, a new Pharaoh, and he does not remember, he doesn't know Jacob, and so he begins to oppress the, the people of Israel. He deals shrewdly with them. He made them slaves. He gave them heavy burdens. They were making bricks and building cities and monuments to his glory. And Pharaoh, as they grow, and they, he continues to try to put them down, thinking that surely the growth rate will, will taper off and slow down, and it doesn't seem to be happening, so he begins to think, well, I've got to do something else, and he decides that he will try to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys. In the midst of this, he, he goes to some midwives, some Hebrew midwives, and instructs them to, to murder these baby boys on the birth stool. And this most powerful man in the world is outworked. His plans are thwarted by, in this day, those who had no position, who were not among the wise, these Hebrew midwife women, and God uses them to display to this king of Egypt that he alone is sovereign. In the midst of this ugliness of killing of all of these Hebrew baby boys, Moses was born. Moses was born, and he was rescued, and he was raised in the very house of Pharaoh. At 40 years old, Moses, we don't know a lot in between there. We know he was raised there, received all sorts of training in Pharaoh's house. But at 40 years old, he, he understands that he is one of them. He's one of the Israelites. And one day, he goes out to look on the Israelites. And he sees their work, and he sees an Egyptian mistreating, beating, attempting to beat to death one of these Israelites. And Moses, who has 
favored position who has a lot to risk steps down from that position and comes and rescues this Israelite, but he does so in a way that he kills this Egyptian. And just at the moment when he thinks his people will finally receive him, the next day he comes out and he attempts to break up an argument between two Israelites, and they reject him. And he realizes that it's found out, that this thing is known, that he, he committed murder against this Egyptian. And so at 40 years old, he runs off and he goes into hiding. He runs into Midian. And in Midian, he meets a woman, marries that woman, and he begins a family with this daughter of a Midianite shepherd. For 40 years, God trained Moses in the wilderness. And this is where we are. The, the, for many days in the opening verse here in our passage today, deals not so much with all of that history, but at least those, these, from age 40 to 80 in Moses' life, where he's in the wilderness being trained by God. And all of that time, the Israelites are suffering. They're suffering in, as slaves in Egypt. Well, the, the verse goes on in verse 23, and it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Well, you say, what's significant about that? Well, the significance is that when this king died, it meant that everyone who was trying to kill Moses, the very reason that he was in hiding, they were all dead. And so now Moses could now return to Egypt. This was opening the door for Moses to come back and to fulfill his calling and his role as the deliverer of Israel. In chapter 4, 19, we, we learn this because God says there, The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. As I thought about that, and as I read commentaries, and I studied for this, this sermon, I couldn't help but to notice that that sounds eerily familiar to another story in the Bible. You remember that story? Matthew, chapter 2. Verses 13 through 20. I won't read all of it, but let me just read part of that to you because I want you to see the similarity in the language and the details of the story. Matthew 2.13 says, Now when they had, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child, baby Jesus at this point, and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Verses 19 and 20. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. You see what's going on here? Put yourself in, in the shoes of those who were hearing this for the first time. Put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew, Jew who was hearing the story of Jesus for the first time. All this first century Jew had ever known was all the teaching of the Old Testament. They had heard all the stories of Moses, but when they heard for the first time this story of Jesus and how he had to flee a ruler who was seeking to kill him, and then waited there in exile till that king died and had a message from the Lord saying, now you may return, that first century Jew would have said, that's just like Moses. Put yourself in the shoes of a first century Gentile who had been converted to Christianity. They had never known the stories of the Old Testament, but now they had been told the story of the Gospel and, and they had come to know Him as Lord and Savior. They, had, they knew the story of Jesus being taken off into exile and hiding away for those years and then coming back. And when they then were being taught 
the history of God and they heard this about Moses, they would say, that's just like Jesus. You say, well, what's the significance? Well, the significance is, remember the point at the beginning was that God is often at work even when we don't even realize it? Well, here, what God's doing through Moses in sending him off into exile, even though it's, it's at the very decision of Moses to go out and kill this Egyptian, he winds up, up off in exile. But what God is doing is God through that is foreshadowing what he would do in Christ. He's giving us a picture ahead of time of the one who would come to redeem mankind. That one day, just as Moses would return to deliver his people, one day there would also be another one who would come and he would deliver his people. You see, God in Exodus is foreshadowing his plan for redemption, which means for you and I, here in 2015, God has a plan. We say, well, yeah, we know he has a plan. He sent Jesus to die on the cross. He came, he lived, he died. He was raised again. We know that plan. But do you understand that God's plan for redemption is still the same? That God's plan to redeem has not changed. That He is still the one who has devised that plan. He is still the one who is so committed to that plan that in 2015, all throughout 2015 and beyond, if He tarries, He is working out His plan to redeem a people for Himself. He is committed to that in the same way that that hundreds of years ahead of time He foreshadows the event. The same way God holds right now the very present that you are in. He holds the very future of your life. God has a plan. And even when you and I don't realize it, He is often providentially working through the seemingly ordinary course of human events. Those things that will come your way this year are not coming your way taking God by surprise. They are coming because, as First Peter chapter 1 tells us, that it has been deemed necessary that you would suffer these things for a little while so that you might be conformed to the image of Christ. The death of a king here seems rather ordinary. It's, it happens. It's important in, in history, but it's rather ordinary. But it's not ordinary because God, in His sovereign, providential will, is controlling human history. Notice that God acts before the cries of His people. I want you to see this because we're tempted when we read verses 23 through 25 to think that the reason God now decides to rescue His people out of Egypt is because they all of a sudden began to cry out to Him. And it was their prayers that then moved and motivated and manipulated God. The reality is, God does call us to pray, and God in His sovereignty calls us and expects us to pray, but the reality is, we don't manipulate God the same way that a child manipulates a new remote-controlled toy that they got for Christmas, by pushing levers. You and I can't change the will of God. God calls us to pray, and the Bible tells us that in in Matthew 5, I I won't read it, but in Matthew 5, He knows, your Heavenly Father knows what you need even before you ask it, but even in in that, He still expects us to ask Him. Ligon Duncan, who was a pastor in Mississippi, said, the cries of God's people don't make Him to be a loving God. The predicament of God's people, don't, don't, they, they don't make Him a loving God. The grief of God's people 
doesn't make him a loving God. He already was. Don't lose sight of the fact in 2015 that just because you are suffering and God doesn't seem to be answering that He's not working behind the scenes because God has made a promise that if you are His child that He will see you through all the way to the end. That what He began in you, He will finish. God is at work even when you and I don't even realize it. Well, second point in this sermon today is this. We often look for help in all the wrong places. And this is where it's going to get pretty practical. We often look for help in all the wrong places. Right now you're probably thinking of that country song that was popular when I was growing up, looking for love in all the wrong places. That'll be stuck in your head all day. You'll be at lunch and you'll say, why do you have to say that? You know? But uh, we often look for help in all the wrong places. Verse 23 at the end, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Up to that point, we don't read anything about them crying to God. At this point, we just read about them groaning and crying for help. See, even though the death of this king of Egypt meant that now Moses could return to Egypt, maybe they had put some hope and some stock in the fact that maybe one day when that king dies, we'll be set free. It was common in that day that, that when, when one king died and another, another king came into power, that in order to win favor, that he would give certain liberties to those who were under his rule. So maybe they had thought, maybe when he dies, maybe things will change. All things will go away because he's really our problem. But the reality is, based on these verses and based on also Ezekiel and other places, just because this king dies doesn't mean their problems go away. We often look for help in all the wrong places. Can you imagine groaning under the weight of such a heavy burden for 40 years? 80 plus years? The Bible here tells us that it was 430 years that the Israelites groaned under the weight of slavery in Egypt. Can you imagine such a thing? Some of you can. Some of you can, can imagine. You can say to me, all I've ever known is suffering. You look at your life and you say, all I ever remember is this pain or this hurt. As I was looking back at, at my family history, I, I can go back generation after generation, and I go back many generations, and I see addictive behaviors and all these things that have plagued our family for so long. And some of you can say the same thing. You can go back and you can look to cancer, and you can look to all these things, and you say, when will it ever stop? Seems like all you've ever known. Scotty Smith, who is a pastor in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, tweeted out this week, and, and I was just stopped in my tracks when I read what he wrote. Grace often feels like surgery without an anesthetic. The goal of grace is health, not painlessness. See, the reality is when you and I are going through suffering and hurt in our lives, even though it may last a lifetime, we need to trust, we have to believe that God is up to working out His will because He is committed to making us like Christ. During that time, in 430 years, they must have been tempted to, to go and turn to many other sources for help. I can't help but to think this, they, they must have tried to turn to so many other places. We think, well, who in the world could these little Israelites turn to to try to help, to try to deliver them from slavery? 
I mean, were they going to turn to other Israelites? Other Israelites didn't have any power. Were they going to turn to Egyptian citizens? What Egyptian citizen is going to go against the Pharaoh? Are they going to turn to other nations around them and beg and plead, will you come and fight for us and deliver us? Well, Egypt was the most powerful nation with the most powerful army in the world. No one was going to mess with that. They seem to be in a very, very, very hopeless situation, yet Ezekiel tells us that even when they had nowhere else to turn, they still turned to other places. Ezekiel, you have to dig a little bit to find this, but if you go to Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 6 through 8, on that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things from your eyes. Cast away those detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. See, in 430 years, having no kinsman to turn to, having no neighbor to turn to, having no nation to turn to, you and I would, would sit here in hindsight after we know the rest of the story thinking, why would they not turn to God? It doesn't make sense that they wouldn't turn to God. It doesn't make sense that even in the middle of that they, they turn to the very idols of the nation that is oppressing them. That doesn't make sense. But all of us should know that when we are in desperate situations, it doesn't have to make sense. We can rationalize and justify whatever, whatever behavior we come across because we turn to it thinking that somehow, some way, it might help us. I begin to think through what are these things that we turn to other than God. And I know some of these will be what you're expecting and some of them won't be. But I want us to just seriously think about these things for a little bit this morning. Some of the things that we turn to other than God when we are in trouble. Drugs and alcohol. It seems cliche, and maybe your family and you, maybe you've not been touched by this. But my sister has spent the last 25 years of her life in some way giving herself, chasing after some hope, some help in a pill or in a bottle. And it has never delivered her one time. I go back beyond my sister and I go back to my mom's brother. And I remember those days when, when we would be there as children and the doorbell would ring late at night and my, my uncle would come to the door who was, who was high or strung out on something and had nothing to eat and want something and he had put so much hope in that thing and it had left him empty. I go back beyond that. I go back to my mom's grandparents who were alcoholics. And that's as far back as I can go because I've not been on Ancestry.com. But probably I'd go back and I'd find some more stuff. We turn to these things because we think these will give us hope. These will, these will free our mind. These will stop the pain. And the reality is they don't. We turn to things like possessions. 
We think the more we have, if I just had that, then that would give me peace. If I just had that, then that would make me happy. If I just had that, then I'd be at the level with them and I wouldn't feel inferior to them anymore. And the reality is you can stuff your closets full to the rod's bow under the weight and it will not give you any satisfaction or any peace of mind or any happiness. We turn to someone other than our spouse. We turn to another man or another woman. We think, well, I deserve this. I deserve to be happy. And we think, well, this person will make me happy. The reality is, they will never make you happy because it's not part of God's design. God has designed the man and the woman to leave their father and mother and to cleave to one another through the good times and the bad times. We turn to even sometimes our own spouse, our family. We pour ourselves into our kids and we think, well, if I could just live again through my kids, if I can just be the cheerleader that I was never able to be, not me, I'm speaking for someone else, obviously, right? I never made the basketball team, so I'll live through my son. And we think these things will give us happiness. And we chase these dreams. We chase these other things. They are idols in Egypt. Sometimes even things like suicide. We think this is the ultimate out. This will fix all my problems. This will take away all the pain. And the reality is, it only ushers in so many more questions and so much more pain. Not for you, because your life is over. Really, it has only begun. But for those who have left behind, it answers nothing. It doesn't, it doesn't give the hope and the happiness and the peace that you think it might. Sometimes we even turn to ourselves in the way that Moses did when he went out there to, to deliver that Israelite and wound up striking the Egyptian down. And we think, well, you know what? If I'm going to be happy, nobody's going to care about me except me, and I'm going to do it. And we go out and we try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try to make our lives right. And it's just an idol in Egypt. It's just an idol in Egypt that causes us to be left in hiding, running for our lives. We even turn to things like, well, if, if that thing were just removed from my life, if that person were just gone, if that situation would go, the same way that the Israelites must have thought, well, if that king would just die. Maybe there were those that just spent their time making bricks, daydreaming about how they could take the life of this Pharaoh. That will just fix it all. And I will be the hero of my people the reality is, when he died, nothing changed. Hear, hear me, church. All of these things, regardless if I've hit what you're chasing or not, the reality is when we pursue hope or happiness or peace in anything other than Christ, we will be left disappointed every time. We will be left in bondage every time. These Israelites, every time they would turn to any of these things, they would come away saying, I've still got to go out and make bricks. You're still in bondage. 
Up to this point, their cries for help were not God-directed at all. They, they had turned to other things. They were crying for help, but they were crying for help after all these other things, and they were, they were left in bondage the entire time. But then the Bible says here, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Matthew Henry has a beautiful way of saying this. He said, before God unbound them, he put it into their hearts to cry to him. There's an old saying that says, when God prepares to bless his people, he sets them to praying. See, God had selected Moses to deliver his people, but God right here, right in this passage, is going to display to the people of Israel that while he will use means, he will use Moses to deliver them, he alone will be their deliverer. It will not come through any other. God, all up to this point, has, has done everything to display that He alone can get credit and glory for what is about to happen. I mean, who could dream that a couple of Midian, Midianite midwife women in this century could take on the most powerful man in the world and say to him, well, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. And come away unscathed. I mean, God all along has displayed that He alone will be their rescuer. Yes, He's going to use Moses. But God alone will be their deliverer. Are you treating, this is the question I want to ask you. Are you treating God as a last resort? Are you waiting until you have expended all other avenues till you turn to God? I'm not telling you today that if you will simply just turn and, and, and cry out to God that He will deliver you from all of your circumstances and from all your suffering. I cannot promise you that because sometimes it is appointed for you to suffer. Sometimes it is necessary for you to be made like Christ. See, this is not preaching that draws crowds. This is hard stuff. I wish I could say to you, come to Christ and all of your aches and pains will go away. Your children will get right. You will have lots of money in your bank account. But I can't tell you that because that's not the call of Christ. Christ says, come to me and die. But all those who come to me and die will surely live. Are you treating God as a last resort? Ligon Duncan again says, If so, God in His wisdom may wait for your sighs and for your groaning in order that you would love Him rather than using Him. And then, let me just run through. I told you three points. The, the last one is four, but they're all together. And So let me just give you these quickly because this is where the hope comes in. God is often at work when you and I don't even realize it. But God hears. This is huge for me. As I was reading this passage, this, I was supposed to have preached this passage about three weeks ago. And as I'm going through this with my sister, and I'm reading this, and I'm coming across this, and I'm wondering, why, God, why did this happen? And I read, God hears. God heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. 
and God knew. You may be in the middle of suffering wondering, what is the purpose in all of this? When will God answer? Does suffering go unnoticed? Let me just remind you today, let this be a reminder to you that God hears. The three words used to describe their prayers express intense grief, bitter distress, and painful agony. In other words, it was all they could do at this point to cry out to God. Their suffering was so intense they didn't know what else to do. They could barely get the words out. The people of God have always known this type of prayer. In Psalm 130, the psalmist writes, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Some of you know what that's like to cry to God out of the depths. Philip Graham Ryken, in his commentary, wrote, Even a groan can be a prayer, provided it's directed toward God in faith and not in rebellion. God has promised that even our moaning is articulated at the throne of of His grace in the form of a petition. That's what Romans 8.26 is all about when he says that when we don't even know what to pray, and it simply can come out as groans, that the Spirit then interprets that into articulated petitions at the throne of grace. I was so thankful for this. I was so overcome with the guilt of how I had walked away from my sister in the middle of this. For years I walked away from her because I had to distance myself because I I came to a place, this is just me being real and transparent before you, I came to a place where I just did not like my sister. And you can say all you want, oh, you didn't really not like her, you didn't like what she was doing, and maybe that's the truth, but I'm telling you, in my soul, I didn't want to be anywhere around my sister. And then when my sister was laying in that bed on a ventilator, maybe never being able to speak again, I was overcome with such grief that all I could do was that cry where you just convulse. And I experienced this. I experienced crying out to God and just not knowing what to pray and just, ah. I'm so thankful that God hears. I'm so thankful that God, in the midst of our suffering, hears. That He doesn't just overhear, but that He turns His ear to us and He hears. God remembers. This is beautiful. In verse 24, he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God remembered in the Old Testament. Every time we read that, God is not all of a sudden recalling something that he forgot. God doesn't do what we do. God doesn't get up and go to the kitchen and say, why am I in here? Right? God doesn't do that. God's not here remembering something that he forgot. Instead, all throughout the Old Testament, when when the Bible uses this language of God remembering, it is because God is about to act on a person's behalf. We read this all throughout the the Old Testament. In Genesis 8 and in chapter 9 with Noah, God remembered his covenant. In Genesis 19, God remembered his covenant with Abraham and he saved Lot when he was destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis chapter 30, he remembered his covenant and he opened the womb of Rachel. 
In Exodus chapter 32, when Moses is on the mountain, we'll find out that and, and, and Aaron is in the valley below and they make this golden calf because they say, we don't know what's happened of Moses. And even after the, the deliverance out of Egypt, they turn back to idols. God remembers His covenant with Abraham. You and I better be thankful that it is not our faults, it is not our sin that He remembers against us. Some of us live our lives as if God never, he, he always remembers the bad stuff. The reality is, when God looks at you in Christ, He remembers His covenant with Abraham in Christ. It is His grace that He remembers. In Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. See, God told them what would happen beforehand. God had made this promise. This is what's going to happen. You're going to be in a nation that's not your own, and you'll be oppressed for 400 years. But I'm telling you, I'm promising to you, I covenant to you that I will deliver you. I will bring you out, and I will not just bring you out, I'll bring you out with great possessions. And see, God remembered that. He was deciding to act. The same God who remembered the promise He made to Abraham and sent Moses to redeem His people also sent Jesus. God remembered that He had promised a Redeemer to free us from slavery to sin, a son to keep the whole law for His people, and a lamb to take their punishment. And God remembered that. How many times have you felt like you were unworthy? How many times have you felt like you've disqualified yourself from being called one of His? So the reality is you have. I have. We are unworthy. But that's what makes it grace. God remembers, chooses on His own to remember he doesn't say, oh, that people, I'm sick of their stuff. It's kind of what he said there in Genesis with the golden calf. And Moses said, but God, if you do that, if you destroy this people, then the nations will laugh and they will scorn you and they will think they've won. And the Bible there says that for the sake of his own name, he held back his wrath. God remembers. God sees. In verse 25, God saw the people of Israel. It's not like a rescue mission where He finally spotted them. We went and saw Unbroken over the, over the Christmas season. Between Christmas and New Year, we went to see Unbroken. It's a good story of, of uh, a World War I veteran. Um, it's a great story, and they're stranded at sea. But it's not like God is out there, and He's looking, and He's looking, and He's looking, and He finally sees them. Instead, the Bible means that he turns his gaze. That he turns toward them. That he looks at them. That he chooses to, to set his affection on them. To show them kindness and compassion. Let the experience of Israel teach us that God sees. 
Psalm 34, 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Doesn't it, doesn't it help you to know that even when you can't see his gaze, that he sees you? And then lastly, God knows. God knows. He says God knew. And this can be interpreted at least a couple different ways. Um, commentators went back and forth different ways. I think both are probably helpful for us. We'll find out one day what the real meaning of this was. Maybe both. God knew. God knows your struggle. Hebrews 11 talks about the fact, or, or all of Hebrews really talks about the fact that we don't have a high priest that cannot sympathize with us. But in all ways, he understands because he came among us. He took on flesh. He dealt with temptation. He dealt with struggle. He dealt with suffering. He dealt with loss. He dealt with all of it. He knows. So when, when you're in the middle of suffering, you don't have a God who is aloof, who cannot sympathize with your weaknesses. We have a God who knows. God knows what you're going through. In fact, He's probably the only one who can truly say to you, I know. The second way, though, this can be interpreted is God will make himself known. We're going to find out in the, in the chapters to come that God's going to make himself known. He's going to deliver them. Now, again, I wish I could tell you that, uh, that he will deliver you, that he will make himself known in your situation. And if you'll just turn to him, then all will be made right instantly. I can't tell you that. I can tell you that one day all will be made right. I can say that confidently. I can say that and, and tell you with every fiber of my being, I believe that. Just as he was about to show himself on the behalf of the Israelites, one day he will for all who cry out to him. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what's the conclusion in all of this? Does suffering go unnoticed? Well, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It can sometimes go on unnecessarily because we refuse to cry out to Him and we cry out to other things. Sometimes it can linger and last because God is up to something that you can't see. But suffering doesn't go unnoticed. I read this week, and it, again, was one of those things that just helped me tremendously. Someone wrote, because of, and I don't remember how they worded it at the beginning, but because of Jesus, because of him coming to the cross, coming to this earth, going and, and defeating death once and for all, cancer has cancer. I began to think that through cancer has cancer because cancer will one day be eaten up the same way that cancer has destroyed so many lives here and now. I began to think that through and began to, what else has been destroyed? And as I thought about my sister who'd been violently attacked, I thought, violence has been assaulted. Loss has been robbed. Burden has been loaded down with a weight it could never carry. Does suffering go unnoticed? It may feel like it at times. But child of God, let me tell you, for all who cry out to the Lord, He hears, He remembers, 
He sees and he knows. And one day, he will make himself known. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you today that I can say that you love us. We love you only because you first loved us. And God, I thank you today that I can preach not having to impress, not seeking to to please, not, not seeking to tickle ears, but God, I thank you that I can simply open your word and God, preach what you've called me to preach. God, glorify yourself. Glorify yourself, Lord, by doing what you've been doing from day one. Redeem a people for yourself and build your church to your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to respond, to reflect and respond. We don't ask you to stand right away simply because we want you to think about what's been said. I know that today's sermon is heavy in a lot of ways. And maybe you're here and you've never, I mean, you're not in the middle of suffering at this point. Well, file this away. Because at some point, I can, I can assure you, suffering will come. File it away. Be ready to use it. Even if you're not in the middle of suffering, be quick to cry out to the Lord. Understand that you have a God that hears and he remembers and he sees and he knows Maybe you're here today and and as you reflect on these things, God will call you to some specific act of obedience. And we want to encourage you to to do that. Maybe you're here today and and that act of obedience is to turn to Him. Just for the first time ever in your life, you've been pursuing hope and happiness and peace and all these other things, and they have done nothing but left you in bondage. And today, the calling on you is to say, turn to Jesus. Today, I'd love for you to come talk to me. You can know the hope and the peace and the joy that is found in Christ alone. Not by coming to me, but if I can help you in how to come to Christ, I'd love to do that. I'm going to be seated right down here on the front. I'd love for you to come speak with me. If you need prayer for something, I'd love to pray with you. There will also be other believers that will be out in that out through those doors, around to the left, in a prayer room. They would love to just be a brother or sister to you and pray with you. Maybe you'd like to make these steps sort of an altar to just pour your heart out to God. I don't know what it is that you need to to do. But I can tell you, you will not find any peace in hardening your heart to His calling. Be obedient to what He calls you to today. Let's worship God as we respond to Him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.